0: says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool the lord sends out from zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your foes your people will offer themselves willingly on the day you lead your forces on the holy mountains from the womb of the morning like dew your youth will come to you the lord has the lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter heads over the wide earth. He will drink from the, pa- from the stream by the path. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The word of the Lord. You may be things make up this song. major parts. The Lord said. And the Lord. Um, in the, as we go through this journey to these psalms, one of the things that Eugene Peterson paired with them is titles. Um, like last week we had Unself Made. Or there's a delay. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Uh, last week we had unself-made, this week we have unself-centered. And when you think, and what he talked about in relation to this is, the Lord says, in that second section, the Lord has sworn, we find these two realities that are greater than the realities we can think of of ourselves as self-centered. Is that there's something truer, that that the one who... um, has made the universe, who has structured um, it the way it is, has brought forth the Jews out of slavery and out of death and into new life, who has raised Jesus from the dead to hear the words the Lord says, means there's something truer about reality than we can think in our self-centered ways. Or to say in another way, the Lord swears, the Lord has sworn that these realities are drawing us in different ways. And so part of his argument with these, this picking this psalm is that um, the early Christians found Psalm 110 to be one of the most important psalms. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Um, directly quoted seven times, alluded to 15 times, one of the ones which was um, Colossians, which David read for us, and the other was um, from Matthew, which is a very literal one um, where they're debating whom the Messiah is going to come from. Um, it's one used over and over again. Um, and yet what he points out in his commentary is that, you know, Psalm 23 is well-known in America. And there's no slight to, to having Psalm 23 well-known. But he says there is a slight to Psalm 110 not being better known. And part of it is, this idea, is that there's, um, we, we gravitate towards psalms that have deep meaning for us in times of trial. Out of the darkness I cry to you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your unfailing kindness. These psalms sort of radiate radiate around our presence, but there's a whole other section of psalms that talk about God's world, that Lord reveals through what he says. The Lord has sworn certain things to be true about our reality. And this, he thinks, can unsettle us in some ways. David and I were talking this week, and this book um, that sort of gave us the psalms that we're walking through, came out in 1985. Um, I was three, um, uh, just, just to feel old for me, but young compared to some other people. It's a great middle spot right now. Um, uh, but uh, the book came out, and what preceded the book, and which in many ways is alluded to often in this book, is this book called The Unsettling of America by Wendell Berry. And what in Unsettling of America, uh, Wendell Berry argues, for our culture, thinking through who we are as Americans, is what happened is from, from the 1950s all the way until the present is, is agriculture, agrarian ways of being and relating to the land, and, and this is not just to say, when I say agrarian, agrarian refers to a whole wisdom mindset. Agrarianism speaks of a way of being and relating to the world different than urbanism, different than other ways of being. And what Barry tries to argue is that what happened um, from 1950 till he wrote that book in the 70s, but has only accelerated since then, um, is the decline of the American farm, the decline of people who live on land and relate to till it, And those who live and gain wisdom, not from urban centers, not from um, being drawn. This is before the internet, remember, so uh, you could be less drawn into all the other ways of being distracted too. But to live in a way and related to the world in a certain way. And he argued in that book that it cultivates different ways of care, different ways of neighborliness. For instance, the neighborliness of a harvest is not something that you could replicate in a city Um, You could replicate neighborliness in other ways, but it doesn't come in the same way it does in agrarian situations. But what he argues and what he continues to say is that by losing those people, so one person now farms um, acres and acres of farm, and so much so that they're, um, if you've seen anything on it, uh, overcome with debt, with the equipment they need to be able to do it, Um, And so what happens is this term agribusiness, no longer agrarianism or agriculture, but agribusiness begins to take over. What happens is is he argues is that we're losing not just um, farms, not just farmers, but an entire way of life that is good for us to have in the world. A way of relating and being that's different than we would find in suburban or urban areas. He says in that book, if we are correct, uh, if we are to correct our abuses of each other and of our land and if our effort to correct these abuses is to be more than a political fad, that in the long run, um, uh, that will in the long run be only another form of abuse, then we're going to have to go far beyond public protest and political action. We are going to have to rebuild the substance and the integrity of better minds, better friendships, better marriages, better communities. As he sort of walks through that book, he argues that what happens is we sort of um, move towards agribusiness, move from separating ourselves from the realities which life has been bound to for so long, other things begin to fall apart. Peterson, in this way, takes this book, um, in this book and looks at the way in which prayer, the Christian being able to be attentive, the Christian believing in the work of prayer, the Christian taking the time to worship together is also in danger in this um, new machine way of making the world. We begin to lose those things. For instance, pastors here, we get together and we lament how hard it is to get people together. Um, They're not that exciting of people, so this is what we've got. (laughs) Um, but we notice how much more time people spend in their cars today commuting. And this is not, we don't blame anyone for this, but it's hard. You're going to go from Rifle to Aspen or from Rifle to Newcastle or from, not Newcastle, I don't give you an exemption there, Uh, Rifle to Carbondale or Glenwood. Um, You're adding to this time in which you're not at home. And this is just, Uh, I don't expect us to do anything about this except for what Barry says. If we are going to do something, we're going to have to find a way to have better minds, better communities, better marriages, and better ways of being for one another. And so we find ourselves drawn in this modern world into a way in which we're losing all of those virtues and all of those spaces, and in Barry's mind, that attention to prayer of being a believer in this small way. And what he talks about prayer um, in the book, he talks about as this thing which runs through the constant hum of the world, that every day Christians are faithfully praying, and that that does something. I was on a call this week with another pastor, and there's a famous quote that they say, "If if the community our church is in isn't better for our church being here, then our church has failed. All defines how you define better, right? Um, when I hear that, I hear if our church doesn't house um, ministries that serve the poor and needy, our church has failed. Or if our church isn't out there protesting uh, injustices, our church has failed. Or And I go, that's that's missing what the church can do. Many organizations in our valley can protest. Many organizations in our valley can can um, organize um, and support people in need. But what the church alone can do is worship, is pray. And so better, what's that mean? Our community is better for the churches in this valley being able to pray, worshiping and dignifying God's name in their services, rightfully administering the sacraments together, the bread of the world. In um, sharing the gospel. See, now, if, I, if, you, if that quote, um, if you said it with the mayor, and you said, so our goal is to go out into a community, invite people into knowing Christ, because we think that we'll make better marriages and better lives, and that's maybe you, too utilitarian of a way to think about becoming a Christian, but there is some truth in it. He'd go, that's not what I thought you meant. <laughs> I thought you meant that you wanted to join us in our new initiatives and all this stuff to make the city better and safer than this, that, and the other. And it's not that there's anything wrong with those things. But they aren't the thing that only the church can do. And so Peterson, in his book in 1985, begins talking about how the world uh, seems worse than it was and all the challenges that come with that. And I'm like, totally not relevant today. None of us are stressed about the state of the world. Nobody ever comes to me and says, what should we do about... Um, it seems like we per- per, uh, perpetually exist in that state for some reason, for good or for bad reasons. Um, but that we, uh, and then he notes that, you know, people are doing things, but when you meet the people who are doing things, they seem so scattered themselves sometimes. Reminds me, I've told this story before of when Richard Rohr, he began his Center for Contemplation and Action. Um, And he wanted people to come together and spend half their time in contemplation and half their time in thinking about the actions that they do to make the world more just. And within like a year, they found out that everybody was burned out and messed up and they were not going to be able to do half and half. It was going to be like 95% contemplation and 5% thinking about their action because they were um, so unhealthy in the ways in which they were trying to care and respond to the world. Which brings us back to the psalm. The Lord says, the Lord has sworn. See, if we begin to act and begin to learn in our prayers, that that's the space in which we come from. The Lord has said that this will be my king. The Lord has said that this one will be my priest. We'll talk about what priest might mean And more expansive term a little bit later, but that this message that we hear there, if we are to go out as ambassadors of this kingdom, and it's this kingdom that Jesus announces, um, it's his first act in uh, the three first gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that he announces that the kingdom is at hand after his baptism. Repent and believe the gospel. He announces this new order, this new shape taking place in the world, and new people being brought into it, if we are to go out, and we go out thinking the Lord has not said that this is the king, that the Lord has not sworn that we have a priest, and not only that, in, in this psalm we hear the expectation of the victory of what God is going to do. I mean, if we go out thinking we lose, um, which the book of Revelation kind of paints losing as winning, which becomes a challenge. Your anxiety will only rise, though. If you think your faithful action in the world is all that the world hinges on, it's no wonder that we have to spend all our time when we finally get it in contemplation and not action to be able to renew ourselves. We think that all of our... And, and, so far, that might sound like I'm picking on the activist class, which I certainly am. They annoy me. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, a little bit. I'm kidding. I said it too easy. Nobody believes I was kidding. We can be thinking about the, the homely class as well. I mean, you can meet people so stressed about the relationships that they have in home so stressed about trying to order all the things and where they send their kids to school or how they relate to the world or how they guide in this way that they seem to have less hope than the activist class, if that's even possible. Um, They seem to think that it all hinges upon their ability to structure the world. And this comes in various forms in different ways. This is Peterson says, this is why it's said twice in the psalms so we're reminded of it. The Lord says, and then it only takes two verses for us to have to go back to hear that the Lord has sworn to re-center ourselves in an unself-centered way. And so this hidden work of prayer, he calls, um, is the repair and the healing of interconnections. Prayer is, is the repair and the healing of interconnections. One of his big things that he comes after, and I think we fear it too, is that prayer is too private. And he says private is not the correct word for prayer. I've used this quote before, but but Bart's notion of that when we clasp hands in prayer, we begin an uprising against the disorder of the world is really where we should reside in our prayer. Prayer is not this hidden, private thing. But is where we are finding repair and the healing of interconnections. Um, this is William Stringfellow, uh, uh, a writer in the 1940s. It reveals every connection with everyone and everything else in the whole of creation throughout time. I thought I was just saying my prayers. And yet, what Stringfellow says, it is revealing connection with everyone and everything. And the whole of creation throughout times. This one is, I, I believe, from Marcus Aurelius, not a Christian, but he sees the same thing that Springfield is speaking of here. All things are interwoven with each other; the tie is sacred, and nothing or next to nothing is alien or uh, alien to aught else. Which I'm sure I'm missing a word there. Um, point being is that even even the people who lived more in touch with the world sometimes saw this interconnectedness that happens and the word that we have for this interconnectedness as Christians is prayer of being together. And so this brings us back to the Lord says to my Lord, the Lord has sworn. How are we to be found in this way? And these are are sort of two different oracles. Somebody else is speaking on behalf of the Lord. Um, The Lord says... The Lord has sworn is spoken by somebody else. Um, They're reminders for this. Now this psalm has a varied history. It's unclear whether it was used sort of in the inauguration of a king or if it was used at someplace else. But where it falls in the Psalter, at Psalm 110, sort of places it after David's monarchy has ended. After all has fallen apart. People place this in a place to say that it's a future hope that this psalm proclaims. This isn't a reality that they're grasping for at the moment, but one at which they are looking forward to. Now this made it very easy for the early Christians to say that this one we see in Jesus Christ— Christ is the one being spoken of here, and obviously in the passage that Rachel read for us, Christ says that he is being the one spoken here, although it be in in an odd way. uh, The Pharisees have been asking him questions, trying to trap him. Um, He asked them a question, which is like, for me, would be terrifying. I'd be like, I'm done. Um, uh, But who do you think uh, the Messiah is? They said David's sons. This psalm, in its introduction, is called A Psalm of David. Um, and David says, "The Lord says to my Lord, um, how is it that David calls his son Lord? Um, that somebody else is coming.' Uh, it's a bit of a trick that he plays on them, and it ends with what Jer- uh, Rachel read. And then they asked him no more questions, um, which seems to have been the point. There is to is to sort of say how they were bound up in just trying to trap him, and in this reverse questioning." He reveals to them that they don't know what they're talking about. Um, that's that New Testament thing. The right hand thing will come up several times too. But to hear that the Lord has said of a king and the Lord has said of a priest. As we as a people become interested in what God has to say. Now that's, that's a challenge. Am I interested in what God has to say. According to how I go about my day, if you were to graph it out, um, the answer would be like, uh, sadly, way too much no. Um, it might even be like, you're, if 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 Matt, as I come as confession here, is interested in what the Lord has to say, It would have to come as a lightning strike, a car wreck, or something terrible happening to him because the way he structured his day is not attentive to what the Lord has to say. Now, I don't, I hope, I'm not alone with that, but if I am, please come help me. Um, uh, How do we then hear, how do we come to what the Lord has to say to find that more interesting than all the other voices that call to us? There are a lot of people who have something to say in our modern world. For some reason, we thought it wise to lower the barrier of entry into having something to say to, like, an Internet connection. Um, It used to be, like, you could write a letter to the paper, but it may not make it in, um, or yell at the city uh, market, but now you can just do that publicly everywhere. And for some reason, this is odd, we all care way too much because it keeps going on. We hear what the Lord has to say. Can this word come to us? And one of the hallmarks of um, Peterson's ministry that I think I've tried to take as my own, but it's hard in today's world, is that if we begin to listen to the Lord, begin to listen to these stories again, we find our lives within the context of them. If we begin to hear what the Lord has said, we begin to live in the world that is spoken of there. The great theologian George Limbeck says that the goal of the text is to absorb the world in some ways. We begin to understand ourselves and our relations in different ways, and this comes through prayer, and it comes through hearing that message, hearing it over and over again so that we can live into that place. And so that first line that that Jesus used in the discussion with the Pharisees, the Lord says to my Lord, uh, incidentally enough, uh, the Lord in This is where, when the English translators decided to always translate um, Yahweh, WHWH, as Lord, um, and then they have the other use of word, it sounds like the Lord says to Lord, uh, when it's the particular God says to another one, Lord. um, uh, Sit at my right hand until I make enemies a footstool under your feet. This seated at the right hand is one that we confess, funny enough, every week. I didn't even make that connection myself. On the third day he rose again and he ascended it at the heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Sit at my right hand until I make a footstool of enemies under your or enemies, a footstool for your feet. That this proclamation here of what the Lord says first off is that... Um, This king is being invited to sit at the right hand of God. And in this way, the king becomes sort of the, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, um, the partner in administering God's kingdom here on earth. God is in heaven and the one he invites to sit at his right hand becomes the one that becomes partner in that. Now there are uh, Jewish scholars who often argue that there is no place in the Old Testament where human and divine work together in that way and they go through a lot with Psalm 110 to argue that that's not the case. But here it is. um, That Jesus is this one who's invited to sit here at the right hand and to have enemies under his feet. Um, this, in this way, we proclaim the present location of Jesus, by the way. Where is Jesus now? Some people would answer, well, he lives with me in my heart, um, which is true, but that's because he sits at the right hand of the Father. Scriptures are very clear about that. What David read for us from Colossians begins that way. And because he sits at the right hand of the Father, what Colossians goes on to say is whole new ways of being are possible. You can put aside the deeds of darkness and you can put on the clothing of life because your life is now hidden with Christ. Because Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, there's a new way for us to go. Again, the Lord says, the Lord has sworn... Because that's happened, we are brought into entirely new ways of relating and being in the world. And and in the words of the Creed, um, until the enemies are under your feet, or kindly more put in the Creed, and he will come to judge the living and the dead, that in some sense we know what the future brings as well. Because he is at the right hand of the Father, we have a way of knowing where history bends and how it goes. We ask when he's sitting there until he comes to judge the living and the dead or until um, your enemies will be a footstool under Christ's feet. Now, in the New Testament, the enemies, it says, are not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, that which distorts our world. These are the things that bind us. Now, principalities and powers, we may not, um, well, I think we've talked about it long enough here at church um, that it becomes somewhat easier to, to notice principalities and powers in a world. It's hard to turn them off, but it's easier to acknowledge it's what we do battle with. Um, it's our attention, our ability to attend to things. In one way, it's a market that continually tells us what we have is not enough. Another way um, I often talk about the pharma- uh, the The health industrial complex, we have a military industrial complex in this country that that we fight over. We also have a health industrial complex that if we just keep believing and taking the drugs and doing the studies and going through all these things, life will come out okay. All these things that promise to us that can only be given by God are principalities and powers. And it's the these that will be placed under his feet someday. The next reminder in the psalm: The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This one is picked up heavily in the book of Hebrews, which sort of places Melchizedek as this priest who appears in Genesis 14 um, and comes out after battle, brings bread and wine. Ugh. You could be thinking of somebody else. The early churches often thought of somebody else as as Melchizedek. Brings bread and wine and receives a tenth of all that Abraham has conquered that day. Um, This one is the one whom Christ, or this figure, is a memory of. The priest in the order of the order of Melchizedek. What Hebrews sets this up is a contrast with human priesthood, the Aaron priesthood, which is um, instituted by God but has more of a... um, Exchange possibility to it. The origin of the Melchizedek priesthood is nowhere. He comes just out of nowhere in the story. He's called the King of Salem. Um, uh, yeah, the King of Salem, which is uh, the King of Peace, and literally, but also is probably earlierly call him the King of Jerusalem, an early title for that, the City of Peace. He's this one who comes and receives at that moment, it is this one that Christ is proclaimed in the pattern of a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. One who comes from without, isn't come from the same world that we do, but comes from some other place. And what this sort of brings about is this um, in this psalm that we have king and priest. You are a king, the Lord says, you are a priest. But I just want to end with just this short um, idea about what does it mean to say that Jesus is a king. Kings bring order. Kings have power. Kings, incidentally, through all of human history, have enemies. It's what we talked about with the enemies under the footstool. And Jesus' enemies are not those of flesh and blood, but of personalities and powers. Kings face threats. Kings claim space in the world. Jesus, as a king, comes in this way who makes space in his church. As a people who are called by his name, who are called into a way of life and a way of being that was read to us from the book of Colossians. Jesus then comes as a priest. This is one I don't think we talk often enough about. When somebody dies, or when there's a birth, or when there's a marking of a life, generally we don't call kings. We call priests. Priests make meaning. Kings struggle to make meaning. Kings can try to impose an order, but their order is often sort of totalitarian if they go too far. Whereas priests structure order. They place things in different spots. Priests, unlike kings, hear confessions. To go to the king and say, I've done wrong. One, what's the king care? And two, if you've really done wrong, the king might kill you. Um, A priest offers intercessions. A priest calls different places into being for us. So what we have in this psalm is a promise from God You are my king. This one is my priest forever. The Lord says, the Lord has sworn. So what's this finally mean for us as children of this king and priest? Today's sermon sponsored by Wendell Berry. He says that we are all children of divorce. We live in a world where two things that used to go together no longer go together. So we should get anxious and try to make it all fit back together again. No, that's not what he says. He says, You can't put everything back together again. But as we hear, the Lord has said, the Lord has sworn, we have a priest and king that we know how this story ends. We have the freedom to put two things back together again. To, in the small cracks of our lives, invite that in and proclaim, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, even on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray. God, you have given us a king and priest king who leads and guides and sets his kingdom of peace and justice and love upon the earth. A king who, like other ki- unlike other kings, sacrifices on our behalf too. A king who leads downward rather than upward. So too you've given us a priest, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who continually is offering intercessions for us. We go astray as we walk our broken paths. This is the priest who we can come to and say, have mercy on me according to your unfailing kindness, O Lord. It's priest who also sits at your right hand and makes intercessions for us as we walk this path in broken and difficult ways. There's also this priest who lifts us up and inspires us towards meaning and binds hurt things together. And Christ, bind our hearts that way as well. First Christ ascended to the Father.